0: Hey friends, welcome back to the journal feed. My name is Nick Zelt, and this is the only place to get spoon-fed the latest and greatest of emergency medicine. Here, we of course try to make keeping up with the literature easy, like having the latest research spoon-fed to you through your earbuds. So let's take a quick look ahead at what we'll be covering. First off, we have the fast ultrasound exam for kiddos. Are they even worth it? Then PRBC transfusion cutoffs in acute MI patients. After that, dexmedetomidine versus propofol. Who's the better sedative? Then PAO2 targets in the ICU. No harm in being conservative. And finally, letting your computer adjust the D-dimer for you. This is the audio version of the past week summaries, which this week were brought to you by the resilient Bo Stubblefield and Clay Smith. Now then, here's the first article, which was titled The Utility of Focused Assessment with Sonography and Trauma Examination in Pediatric Blunt Abdominal Trauma, a systematic review and meta-analysis out of the Journal of Pediatric Emergency Care. Many have thrown into doubt the usefulness of the FAST exam, particularly in children. An RCT in the JAMA even showed that the FAST exam did not change workup or outcomes in stable pediatric patients with torso trauma. That's just one study, though. What happens if you put all the studies together? Then what do you get? This study was a systematic review and meta analysis of eight studies to encompass more than 2,100 patients. They found that the pediatric FAST exam had a sensitivity of 35% and a specificity of 96% for intra-abdominal injury. Only one of the studies was an RCT, but at least they were all prospective. So with a good positive likelihood ratio of about 10, then if the FAST exam is positive, you need a CT. The negative likelihood ratio isn't that much to write home about though. And the post-test probability for intraabdominal injury in this study was still stubbornly high at around 9%. So even with a negative FAST, these kids still need a CT. So even if the fast exam isn't enough on its own, that's just one tool in our tool belt. Things like the PCARN blunt abdominal trauma rule can also be helpful. Anyways, in a spoonful, a positive fast exam in hemodynamically stable children with blunt trauma warrants a CT. A negative fast exam just isn't enough on its own to forgo a CT though. Coming up second, we have an article titled The Effect of Restrictive versus Liberal Blood Transfusion Strategy on Major Cardiac Events Among Patients with Acute Myocardial Infarction and Anemia, the Reality Randomized Clinical Trial out of the JAMA. The biggest problem with an MI is that your heart can't move around all those nice little red blood cells that are trying to deliver oxygen to your tissues. So of course, we're already going to be doing as much as we can to get your heart to be doing a better job. So what if we're just, you know, a little bit more liberal about giving more of those nice red blood cells? Then maybe our patients would do a little bit better. This is myocardial ischemia after all, so we need to get more oxygen to that heart tissue. This study was a multicenter RCT of 688 patients with acute MIs and hemoglobin levels of 7 to 10 grams per deciliter. Half of the patients received a more liberal hemoglobin transfusion trigger cutoff of anything less than 10 and the other half had a more conservative trigger of just less than seven. The primary outcome was major cardiac events within 30 days, and there was no significant difference between the conservative strategy and the liberal strategy, 11 versus 14%. That's 3% less major cardiac events in the conservative group, but not significantly different. That means that the relative risk was just under 0.8, and the confidence interval spanned from 0 to 1.15, all of which was less than the pre-specified non-inferiority threshold of 1.25. To add to all of that, the all-cause mortality was also a tiny bit lower in the conservative group 5.6 versus 7.7. All of this just tells us that being liberal about transfusions in MI patients doesn't appear to be any good and might do some harm. In a spoonful, just like in critical care patients, conservative transfusion strategies appear to be the best option for MI patients. Third, we have the article titled Dexmedetomidine or Propofol for Sedation in Mechanically Ventilated Adults with Sepsis, out of the New England Journal of Medicine. Septic patients don't uncommonly end up sedated and tubed. As for your choice of sedative for these ventilated sepsis patients, well, both dexmedetomidine and Propofol are actually recommended. Some say that DEX should be your first choice, though, since it could reduce the infection risks over propofol. It might just be because we're not pumping our patients full of some nice fatty emulsion, but who knows. Let's see if the rumors are true. This was an RCT of 422 sepsis patients who were mechanically ventilated and randomized to receive either dex at 0.2 to 1.5 micrograms per kg per hour or propofol at 5 to 50 micrograms per kg per minute. For the primary outcome of days alive without delirium or coma over the 14 days of the study, there was no difference in the median days with just 10.7 for dex and 10.8 for propofol just about really the same. The secondary outcomes of ventilator-free days and 90-day mortality were also the same, so no safety differences to find here. In a spoonful, for light sedation of patients with sepsis on a ventilator, dexmedetomidine and propofol both had similar safety outcomes. And for the fourth article, we have lower or higher oxygenation targets for acute hypoxemic respiratory failure out of the New England Journal of Medicine. As for all of homeostasis, we just want to be in that nice little Goldilocks zone. Or at least we want our patients to be in the Goldilocks zone. Now when it comes to oxygen levels, there's a growing list of actually really well done studies that show that too much oxygen is bad. And we already obviously know that too little is very, very bad. So where do we aim for? The LOCO-2 trial seemed to show worse outcomes with a low-target PaO2 of 55 to 70 millimeters of mercury. So maybe a little bit higher is better. This was the center RCT of almost 3,000 patients who were receiving at least 10 liters of oxygen non-invasively, or 50% oxygen if they were intubated or using a closed system. Half got a PaO2 target of 60 millimeters of mercury, and the other half got a target of 90 millimeters of mercury. With a primary outcome of 90-day mortality, there was no difference between the two groups, and no difference in any of the secondary outcomes either. So that kind of leads us to conclude that a PaO2 of anywhere between 60 and 90 millimeters of mercury seems to be a good place to be. In a spoonful, there was no difference in 90-day mortality in critically ill patients with PaO2 targets of either 60 or 90 millimeters of mercury. And finally, that brings us to our last article, which was titled "Multi-center Implementation of Automated Age-Adjusted D-Dimer Results Reduces Unnecessary PE Imaging, under the American Journal of Emergency Medicine. Now, other than just trying to get people to use the decision aids that we have well validated for us, the other name of the game in low and intermediate risk patients who are suspected of having PEs is reducing imaging. We want to do this for many reasons. It reduces the unneeded exposure to radiation and contrast, as well as reducing length of stay and even overall costs. One of the best ways to do this is to use an age-adjusted D-dimer level. This was well demonstrated to work in the adjust PE trial where for patients over 50 years old, the D-dimer positivity cutoff could be adjusted to be their age times 10, at least when you're using the units of micrograms per liter. Other units will be a little bit different. You can let MD Calc do all the thinking on that for you. This approach has been well validated and it even gets a level B recommendation from ASAP. The reason all of this is great is because D-dimer is actually a very sensitive test for PE it's just not very specific. And so that gives us a good negative predictive value so we can use it as a rule out test for PEs if they already have a lower intermediate risk. Now, unfortunately, the specificity of the D-dimer actually gets worse with age. So adjusting them can improve the test to help decrease unneeded imaging. Now, all of this is wonderful, but in the heat of the moment and with a bit of self-uncertainty mixed in, since it can be easy to forget to age-adjust the D-dimer, or it's just that you have that computer result with a positive test that's marked high staring you in the face, well, how about if our electronic health records adjusted it for you? And to answer that question, the authors did a retrospective pre-post-implementation study in a U.S. healthcare system of six hospitals. The pre-cohort used a positive reference D-dimer cutoff of 0.5 milligrams per ml, and the post-cohort used the electronic medical record to display a D-dimer cutoff that was adjusted for age using the formula of age times 0.01, which is slightly different than the formula I just told you, but they just did it for the units that they're using at their hospital. Anyways... It's worth noting that the electronic health record at these hospitals, both pre and post, already encourage providers to risk stratify their patients using PERC, Wells, or Geneva scores. So if these tools are already being used by you regularly, then this data still applies to your practice. So for the primary outcome, which was the proportion of patients who underwent imaging either by CTPA or VQ scan, as you'd expect... When the cutoff was raised, the number of people who were testing positive was decreased. And this resulted in an absolute risk reduction of 4.4%, or 1,100 fewer CT scans in the post-implementation group. The D-dimer as a test had unchanged sensitivity and actually had an increased specificity, which is just what we were looking to see. This overall improved its diagnostic accuracy. In a spoonful, using the electronic health record to automatically age-adjust D-dimers resulted in less imaging for patients being evaluated for PEs. All right, and that wraps us up. Let's do a quick review of everything that we covered. First off, we saw that pediatric fast exams in stable patients perform well when positive, but don't get you out of the woods if they're negative. Second, conservative transfusion strategies in MI patients targeting a hemoglobin above seven was non-inferior to liberal transfusion strategies, at least concerning major cardiac events within 30 days. Third, the study found no difference between propofol and dexmedetomidine for safety outcomes in ventilated septic patients. Fourth, in critically ill patients, we had a study that showed no difference in mortality when a PaO2 was targeted to be 60 or 90 millimeters of mercury. And then finally, when you build diodimer age adjustment into the electronic health record, then there are less positive tests and fortunately less scanning to go along with it. And now then, that's it, that wraps us up, and you've earned them, we offer them. We have CME credits, which are provided through a partnership with Hippo Education. All the details for that are at our website at journalfeed.org, where in the very same place, if you'd like, you can find all the articles that we've summarized, and you can also sign up for our newsletter if you'd like to get daily spoon feeds through your email. Our goal here at the Journal Feed is to provide better patient care through spoon feeding, as we're trying to help you keep up with the latest research one spoonful at a time. Thank you.